The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors. Good morning, Long Island, and welcome to DDI on Autism on 103.9 FM, keeping an eye on autism and giving a voice to its Long Island community. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Romas, and again, so glad that you can join us this morning as we share and explore all relevant issues related to autism spectrum disorder. My guest today is Dr. Tracy King. Dr. Tracy King is a medical officer in the Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities Branch at the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institutes of Child Health and Human Development. NICHD is one of the institutes that makes up the National Institutes of Health, NIH. Importantly, Dr. King is also an author whose recent publication, Moving the Needle Towards Equity, what NIH is doing to promote diversity, inclusion, and accessibility in research on intellectual and developmental disabilities will help to do just that by moving the needle in this direction. It is a mouthful, Dr. <laughs> Dr. King, and welcome. Thank you for making the time to be here. Thank you for having me and for letting me participate in this discussion um, and for noticing the article. Um you know, we at NIH, I think, have been thinking a lot about um, who participates in the research that we fund. Um, and we know that, um, you know, getting, being a part of research can be really challenging. Um, it can be challenging uh, at a logistical level. It can be challenging to gets to the places where research is being done, um, which is often, you know, big academic medical centers. It can be hard to uh, make arrangements to get there. Um, you know, researchers tend to work nine to five, Monday through Friday. So, you know, you often have to, um, if you're a family member or a person who wants to participate in research, you often have to take off work. You often have to make arrangements for family members, uh, you might have to, you know, pay to park, you, you know, all of those little details that involve, um, you know, it's similar to going to a medical appointment, right, but it's for research. And, uh, and then actually being part of the research uh, can sometimes be challenging. Uh, you know, researchers in the space are really good at, at trying to collect all of the information they think might uh, be helpful in trying to better understand conditions like autism and intellectual disabilities. Um, but sometimes that can make for really long days. It can make for a lot of testing. It can make for um, procedures. It can um, it can just be uh, tiring for a person participating in the research and a family. And I think we are really starting to think about, you know, what does that mean for who ends up actually participating in research? Who um, is contributing information um, uh, when we decide or we try to interpret what's working um, and what's helping people uh, with autism and intellectual disabilities? Um, and I think we're thinking about how we can do better. So um, trying to 
make sure that the people who participate in our research um, situations and exposures and other things that might influence how people are doing and how people might uh, respond to the kinds of interventions that we're uh, supporting the development of uh, with NIH grants. So I think that was really what the motivation for that article was. Yeah, you know, a tall, a tall order and, and, and a big and a big challenge. I I should ask you who who informed who helped inform the conversation, uh, both around how certain groups are underrepresented. Uh, and just as important, if not more so, how to address it. So who are part of the contributors to the conversation? You know, I have been really gratified that there have been many people from many different perspectives who have participated in this conversation. Um, many of my friends and colleagues at NIH um, have helped us think about these issues. The researchers themselves are really insightful about what their research has done and hasn't been able to do in many cases in terms of um, uh, being able to facilitate the participation of people from many different backgrounds. Um, you know, communities, families, patient advocacy organizations, <clears throat> all of those uh, uh, folks from all of those perspectives, I think have really helped us think about how do we um, make NIH research more accessible, meaning, you know, easier to participate, um, more meaningful, um, more relevant to the questions that matter to folks who are living um, with these conditions or folks who have loved ones who are living uh, with IDD conditions um, and not just the questions that are interesting to researchers, yeah. which are often the same, but not always the same. I bet, I bet. So am I right in thinking that the the conversation, let's call it that for a while, is informed by professionals as well as laymen and parents and families and advocates so that there would be that broad view? Absolutely. Um, and I think there's, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, room for improvement in all of those areas. I think, um, I think many NIH researchers uh, are great at bringing um, I'll call it people with lived experiences. So people with autism and IDD conditions, again, their family members, their community supports. Um, and then some uh, folks who are doing research in the space are in the earlier stages of thinking about how to incorporate the perspectives of people with lived experiences into their research. And it's, it's really gratifying to be part of that conversation with many folks. Uh, I think I have learned a ton from people who have been thinking about this for a long time and are uh, really doing that work. And I've also had the privilege of being able to um, talk to people and work with people who are earlier in their thinking about that process. And so it's, I think, uh, a great kind of bi-directional conversation. Yeah, I, I, I suspect I suspect it is. Uh, can you speak to some of the barriers? Why that is? What you know? What have been some of the the issues that have impeded some of the representation issues that that you you guys are looking at? What kind of variables have gotten in the way of uh, you know a, a more egalitarian approach to, <laughs> to to research? 
Uh, thanks for asking that question. Some of them, I think I've mentioned that uh, the way people uh, conduct research can be challenging. You know, uh, uh, being in a tertiary academic medical center and, you know, having to um, to get to research during the workday. But I also think there's more fundamental issues. Um, you know, we at NIH fund a lot of um research on rare conditions and it can be really challenging to get a diagnosis of a rare condition um uh, waiting lists for specialty clinics are sometimes long there are sometimes insurance uh, challenges um and not everyone is able to easily navigate that process so if you don't get a diagnosis you might not even have the opportunity to participate in research on a particular condition at all yeah, you know it really really does resonate uh with me and we'll talk a little bit more but let's pause for just just a moment we're going to be right back and we'll unpack a little bit more about some of the impediments to a, a, a fairer and more robust understanding of what uh, community needs are. So stay with us. Uh, my guest is Dr. Tracy King. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Long Island. You're listening to DDI and Autism on 103.9 FM. Uh, Dr. Michael Rome is here, continuing my conversation with Dr. Tracy King from the NIHCD. Uh, Dr. King, we left off on, I, I feel, kind of important, uh, a couple of important points here. We're beginning to explain some of the variables that serve as impediments to better representation uh, of, of groups and communities when it comes to, to research. You talked a little bit about accessibility and probably we can look a little closer at that. And that some conditions are just so rare that they that they don't get the attention uh, that they need. So, you know, please continue. And then I'd love to ask you a little bit about what gets in the way of accessibility. I have some ideas about it, but I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for the question. Um, you know, I uh, came to my position at NICHD uh, from a background in pediatric primary care. Um, and so I think I came to thinking about these issues uh, with the perspective of um, having often been on the other side of, you know, needing to remember what tests needed to be run, what referrals need to be made, um, how to help a, a patient or a family navigate a process when there are many challenges. Um, as I said, I've seen many waiting lists for clinics. I've seen lots of insurance challenges. I've seen, you know, folks with logistical challenges um, because you have to arrange for transportation and childcare and work release and getting kids out of school often to get to a diagnosis. Um, and then uh, once you get a diagnosis, then you have to find out about whether there are research opportunities uh, for the condition that you've gotten a diagnosis for. Um, and, you know, we've been really fortunate, I think, in many of the research projects that we've supported, um, that researchers are uh, partnering with terrific 
uh, community-based advocacy organizations, but community-based advocacy organizations uh, often attract the people that they attract. And I think we've seen that there are uh, differences, not it's nothing intentional. It's nothing where people are trying to exclude um, families or people from certain backgrounds, but it just happens that if you're spreading information about research opportunities, for example, through social media, you know, you the people who amplify that information tend to be the people in those same social media networks. Um, and, uh, I think we do a great job of spreading the word about research opportunities to people who uh, really consume a lot of information. And we haven't always done as great a job about getting the word out about research opportunities to people who don't necessarily consume information in the same way or, or aren't able to access research opportunities in the same way. Well, I think that's so important to to kind of underscore and just the way you frame that too, that none of this is is intentional, but it, it almost seems like the, sometimes just the unfortunate casualty of where people live and maybe some of the advantages that they have or or do not have. And part of the work that I think you're doing and rather effectively is to shed a light on that and then maybe thinking a little bit about, you know, you know the how, like what, you know, what can we, what can we do about that? Uh, in addition to bringing it to the forefront. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. I think we have really appreciated that there are a lot of people thinking about the how. Um, you know, in some ways, the fact that folks have really gotten more familiar with, uh, you know, uh, virtual encounters. Uh, during the pandemic has in some ways, I think, uh, given us new ideas about how to conduct this kind of research. I think, you know, we've seen that people are being really creative, right? What is it? Ne necessity is the mother of invention. Um, you know, we've seen that uh, folks are doing really interesting things about, you know, how can I facilitate someone participating in research via Zoom, or can I meet someone out in a community, or uh, can I uh, uh, get permission to uh, come to somebody's home to uh, help them participate in research uh, in the comfort of their home environment? Um, I think we're still in the early stages of understanding how that compares to traditional ways of doing research, but it's exciting to think that there's uh, a lot of work being done in that space. And I think that will help make research more accessible to many folks for whom it hasn't been as accessible in the past. It sounds like it will allow for a, a broader, a longer reach in terms of you know, who might be candidates for research. And I also found myself thinking a little bit about what you said just a little early in the conversation about, you know, differences in, in diagnosis, which is, I guess, the, very often the precursor to to research. And, and now what you're also adding, importantly, about virtual opportunities of, you know, for 
Perhaps for perhaps for both. Do you think that this new this new virtual opportunity is also helpful for diagnosis? I think it has potential. Mm. I think you know. I think folks are still figuring out. You know, what are the potential advantages and what are the potential pitfalls of doing things virtually? But there's no question that the world is moving in that direction, right? There's no question that the world is moving in the direction of virtual medical encounters, um, virtual research encounters. Um, and while I think we want to make, do everything we can to make sure that that's being done um, in the best way possible, right? So that um, it's being done in a way that's reproducible, um, in a way that uh, as much as possible, the information that we're collecting reflects the reality of the person who's participating in research. We're not gonna move back the clock. We're not gonna move back to a world where we're only doing research through in-person visits. And so it is, I think, a, an exciting time mm -hmm. that this is a place where we can be uh, doing uh, work to make research more accessible and to capture a more representative look at all people who have a particular condition. Well, thinking about uh, Dr. King, your, your, the title of, of your, your article, I think, that is probably one means of bridging some of this and moving towards greater inclusion. You know, I find myself thinking, and I can't wait to hear comments about this as well. I find myself thinking a little bit that even in that, that virtual space, which is emerging and we're kind of making up as we go still, won't there also be some differences around access? Uh, like who's got the computer and who's technical and who knows what a drop-down menu is? And is there gonna be a little of that as well? Absolutely. And I think we need to be thinking about those issues. We can't assume that everyone has access to broadband. We can't assume that everyone has access to devices. But I think that if we recognize many of those challenges at the earliest stages rather than after the fact, then there are opportunities to, uh, to address them and to figure out ways around them. And even though those obstacles that you mentioned are real, um, they are still not as restrictive as uh, barriers that involve being able to come to a major academic medical center in a major metropolitan uh, city, usually. So, uh, so I think all of those issues are important, and I think we have to be thinking about all of them. You know, I, I do too, and I, I, I feel that one really nice thing that's coming out of the work you're doing and even this conversation is um, kind of a, a sensibility that we need to cultivate to this idea that, you know, we at least have to understand this is has not been attended to adequately and that if we're really thinking about inclusion, we really have to look about it across all sorts of dynamics and what is getting way of inclusion. That's what I think your work is is uh, is flagging. So I'm going to ask you if you'll come back next week and continue our conversation. I think there's an awful lot more for us to kind of build upon here. And I'm looking forward to it. So is that, will that be good for you? That sounds wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, we've been speaking with Dr. Tracy King from NICHD. 
So uh, yeah, the Unish Schreiber Center, all good stuff. Thank you, Dr. King. I'm looking forward to our continuing conversation. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors.